It is week four on our journey through the book of Ephesians. If you don't have your Bible, pull out your phone, grab one from up front. Um, it's week four, and we're finally into Ephesians 1.1. Welcome to West Village, everybody. Take our sweet time, because we don't want to burn through the book too quickly. So today, we're only going to look at two verses also. Chris sent me the verses. I'm like, that's all you're giving me? I want some more to chew on. And then, I don't know, it's probably like an hour and a half sermon I got out of it. So it's going to be great. And the big question we're going to look at today is what defines your life? Simple, straightforward, easy. Uh, and I suspect most of us off the top of our heads don't really have a detailed answer to this, right? It's not something we chew on all the time, but it's a really good question to ask. It's a really good question to get away and contemplate. What defines you? Gives you identity and purpose. Do some self-analysis on what the driving force of your life is. And, um, we're going to spend some time later looking at some examples of what those things may be. Uh, but where I want us to land, the big idea I want us to chew on at the end today, and I'll give it to you now, is that Jesus calls us and defines us. It's in him we find our identity and our being. And it shouldn't be a surprise if you've been around for a while. We're a one-hit wonder around here. Talk about Jesus a lot, and we're not going to stop. But letting Jesus define us and thinking that through in the day-to-day, minute-by-minute minutiae at times of kids and work and life, something that we can't stop doing. I'm going to pray for us, and then we can dive in. Hmm. Jesus, thank you that... Yeah, your spirit is here with us this morning. We've already seen evidence of you at work from baptisms to just your church being together. That is rich. We praise you for that. And I ask that as we dive into your word together, that you will make it active and alive, that you will show us our areas of blindness and weakness where we need you and come, come into those moments and speak your truth. Uh, Be with us, know us, help us see how good you are. Amen. So let's read. So we're just doing Ephesians 1, 1 to 2. I'll read it all because it's short. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Short and sweet. What am I going to talk about? Man, there's no call to action here. This is like a preacher's nightmare. Um, so these are the very first words, obviously. The purpose here is we're actually getting introduced to the author, Paul, to let us know that he has this position of apostle. He's one that goes and spreads the church out like a chief missionary. Uh, we're going to talk more about that stuff in future weeks. But more importantly, in this first half of the first verse, we get to hear this phrase, by the will of God. It tells us how Paul got to where he is. How could a guy write a letter like this, and it become God's word. Uh, and so to better understand the weight of that phrase in Paul's life, we need to know Paul's story. We need to know how he got there, what he's all about. And some of us, this will be a recap, some of us may have never even heard of Paul or barely know his story. So hopefully it's helpful for us all. I won't, I'll go through it pretty quickly here. But let's look at his life before Jesus. So Paul is a Jewish man uh, from a middle-class Jewish family. Um, his Jewish name was actually Saul. But in Latin, that would be Paul. So if you hear, bounce back and forth, same guy, 
P goes to the S, S goes to the P, it's fine. Uh, he was born in the city of Tarsus, which later became Rome. So he's a Roman citizen, which if you know the rest of Paul's life, really important for legal reasons and different stuff. But he's proudly Jewish. Like he is Jewish to the core. Uh, he was trained as a tent maker. So he was a skilled laborer, worked with his hands. Um, tents were more important back then than here. That would be like, you know, he makes portable houses, RVs. I don't know. Like you can figure it out. Um, then he grows up memorizing the Old Testament. So, you know, the part of the Bible that we all skip to get to the parts on the end that we like more, uh, he memorized all that. Uh, <clears throat> whole bunch of it. And so he eventually becomes, what we, if you were here in Matthew, you heard us talk about this group of religious leaders uh, called the Pharisees. And Paul becomes a Pharisee. They were defined by pretty strong beliefs. You know, they believed in life after death. Uh, they had really strong convictions about religious convictions. Like if the Bible said, you know, don't go off the edge, they'd be like, well, you actually have to stand over here. If you go here, you're, you're sinful, you're breaking our traditions. Like they were setting up rules around rules so you never got close um, <clears throat> to sinning. They were very passionate about that, right? They really, really, really wanted to obey God's word and honor him in that way. And they wanted no one to get anywhere close to dishonoring God. And Paul describes himself as one of the best of these. He outperformed his elders and his more experienced ones. He had this passion and zeal to follow the Old Testament, to follow God's word, and to see that others did the same. He was really the picture of what a devout Jew would look like. Um, and eventually, Paul's story, like this Jesus guy comes on the scene and Jesus has these followers after Jesus dies, and there's this fledgling church. And Paul looks at them and says, man, they're not obeying these traditions and rules we set up. They don't think about the Sabbath the same way. They don't think about sacrifice the same way. They're sinners. Something's got to be done with them. They're blaspheming what he believed was right. And so he starts to hunt down these Christians with enthusiasm, right? Because he thinks they're wrong. And if they're not going to repent and believe what he believes, he will beat it out of them. He will stone them to death, throw stones at them, not get high. Um, he will murder them. He will bring them into prison. Not the guy you think would write half the, Old, the New Testament. You can see his passion, but it's pointed in the wrong direction. Um, <clears throat> and then Paul... In the book of Acts, he's on the road to Damascus. He's got this charge to go persecute more Christians. And Jesus intervenes. I'm going to read it here. I think I might have a different version than what's on the screen. It's okay. It wasn't written in English. There can be different translations. So Acts 9, uh, 1 to 18. Let's read this together. This is Paul's story of meeting Jesus. I want us to see it in its full picture. But Saul, so Saul, Paul, interchangeable, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, 
hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and threw his eyes, and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without, without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here, uh, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he is here with authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Crazy story. On his way to go with murderous thoughts to imprison Christians, Jesus says, no way. I have better plans for you. It is my will is different. So he comes in and says, Paul, you change your whole life. Change everything. He blinds him for three days. Uh, that's that's kind of kind of scary. We don't realize how important sight is to us. His whole life changes after this. What does it say there, right at the end? To carry my name before the Gentiles, so all the non-Jewish people, and the kings and the children of Israel. What a great task ahead of him. And by the will of God. This is such a good story. Um, read it a few times this week, and I'm like, oh, this is just so good. Uh, and my thought as I read it over and over again is that we need to take hope here for our own lives, but also for the salvation of those that we care about that we look at and we're like, man, going down the wrong path. We feel so helpless and scared. And we don't know what to do. Um, and we try and like guilt them or shame them or control them into believing Jesus. Um, it's not the spirit. Um, but in fact, God actually lets us walk down these paths, lets those in our lives that we love dearly walk down these paths. So in that moment, when he comes down and says, Saul, Saul, you can hear him. Your hearts are prepared. God's will is that we would be with him, right? He desires that so deeply that we know him. And he passionately pursues his wandering children. And this picture in Paul's life is just a beautiful example for that. And Paul doesn't waste this experience. He lets it change him. It's really important. So, you know, the summary of the rest of his life is now he is defined by Jesus. He has a picture of what he's for. His persecution turns into praise. He's not bringing Christians to death anymore. His torture turns to teaching. His murder turns to mission. He's a new man. And so all that passion and zeal of looking for religious truth as a Pharisee is turned to Jesus. It's redefined. It's amazing. And Paul goes on to become really the greatest missionary that the church has ever seen because he let Jesus redefine him. 
One of my favorite things about Paul is that he was a tent maker. This phrase has come to mean anyone that does ministry but works not for a church or for a missions agency. And so Paul, he reiterates his whole life around Jesus, and a lot of us would be like, well, yeah, it's easy to do because you're, you're Paul or you're full-time or whatever, but in truth, that's not actually what happens. Paul had the same needs as us. He needed a place to stay. He needed food. He needed to provide for himself. And sure, some of the fledgling churches helped along the way, but his bread and butter came from him making tents day to day, hour by hour, so my point here is that Paul understands the same time constraints that sit on many of us between being at an office, doing work, raising kids, mowing the lawn, whatever it is. Like These things consumed or took up time in his life, just like they take up time in ours. And yet, he still passionately pursued Jesus, preached the gospel, planted a bunch of churches. And so if you look at Paul's life and say, that could never be me, that's a lie. The only thing that defined Paul's life was Jesus. And that same thing can define your life. You can say yes to that. And you can let it change you. So that your work and play and rest are always looking to bring Jesus glory. As a joyful act. Because you've been changed. Paul just gives us a beautiful example of what that looks like. Let's keep going. We'll turn this lens a little more inward. Um, so the second half of verse 1 says, To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ. Okay, brisket check. Really close, guys. Really close. If you want to taste it, sorry. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Think about yourselves here. God's holy people. Are we holy people? The faithful in Christ Jesus. Do you go around thinking of yourself as, as faithful? <clears throat> so maybe before we answer those questions, um, we should answer that question I asked earlier. What defines us? What are some of the things that have shaped us, given us our identity and being and purpose? I got a pretty big list, so we'll go through it pretty quickly. But these are some things. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about story lately, the things that shape our story and how we retell our story. And uh, yeah, so this list kind of comes out of that. The first one I call family or relationships. Our relationships deeply shape us, probably the number one thing in our lives, and specifically a relationship with our parents or whoever raised us. Profound impact. If you haven't spent time looking back on your story and how your parents shaped you and made you the person you are today and how they defined you, highly encourage you to do that or do that with some other people. Even for those of us that have been out of their home for decades, our parents still shape us every day. It's a huge one. Children would be the next one. How we care for, what our kids are like. They give us purpose and worth. They take up a lot of time. Uh, and they shape what defines us, what we hold valuable. Or a spouse, you know, just entering into relationships says, I'm not only going to think about myself, I'm going to think about someone else. Pretty shaping. And finally, in this family relationship category, broken relationships. The pain of the past 
deeply impacts how we walk out our future relationships. It's so scarring and hurtful when we don't deal with those things uh, that it shapes everything we do and we can be deeply defined by that or deeply defined by hurt from our parents or a bad breakup. And we kind of build our whole lives around that pain and avoiding it. So relationships. Next one would be accomplishments. Our work. You're a workaholic or you feel a sense of satisfaction and worth and accomplishment through what you do, through how you earn money. Uh, you're driven to be the best at what you do. You're a teacher or a doctor or a nurse. You're like, this is a good cause. I am passionate about this. It gives me a sense of accomplishment. Or maybe it's possessions. Your heart will only be satisfied when you have this good thing. House, car, vacation, whatever it is, you yearn for that. It's on your mind constantly. You shape your life around saving for that thing or taking care of that thing. It defines you. Or maybe accomplishments for you is that your life plan is on track. You know, you're married, you got two kids, you got an RSP, check, 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 check. This is where I'm supposed to be when I'm 35, good. Move on to the next 10 years, it's all detailed out. And every time you look at that list, you're like, man, I'm great, I'm on track. Or the opposite, I feel really bad because I screwed this up. <clears throat> Relationships, accomplishments. And the last one I called setting. This one's probably a little more subtle, but it's where we dwell. The city, Victoria, the neighborhood we're in, the home we dwell in, they shape us, they define us. In Victoria, the culture has certain things that we care about. We care about nature and the environment and no tourists messing up our traffic. And like we care about these things and we complain about them or we seek to protect them. We go to the beach and we clean it up. Or maybe your dwelling is more personal. It's your body. What do you look like? How do you feel? How's your mental health? How's your physical health? You know, I need to be at the gym six times a week, two times a day. Otherwise, I'll feel horrible. Whatever it is, right? I'm going to spend thousands of dollars on supplements and all these things, because we really care deeply, we've been shaped by our body and the image that it projects. And all these things blend together, mix them all up, and shape the person who we are today. They tell us what to love, what to hate, how to live life in really loud, but also really subtle ways. They define who we are and how we live. And none of these things are evil in and of themselves, right? You might have heard some of that in my speech. It's actually a lie. In and of themselves, these things can be used, most of them, for good and bad. But they cannot fully form us. Their shaping is actually incomplete. Left to themselves, there's always something lacking in our lives. If they're the main source of identity, then brokenness starts to seep in. Sin destroys. They're found incomplete. Relationships get broken. Accomplishments no longer satisfy. Our body decays. But at some point, we meet Jesus. And not be like Paul, but at some point, Jesus is going to come in and have an encounter with you. And that encounter has the potential to change everything. Because everything that defined us before is knocked down a notch. Jesus is vying for the place at the top of your priority list. That's the claim. That's what he's asking of you. 
He's really the centerpiece of the machine of our lives that make all the other parts, all the other things that define us fit and work together. He puts them in our place, in their place. He redefines us. And this belief in Jesus is what sets us apart. As Paul says here, Jesus makes us a holy people, a set-apart people, purified people. So what does that actually mean? Some will hear this and think, oh, well, the church must have been really pure. They lived good lives. They made all the best choices. They knew what to do. They had it together. Surprise, surprise, no one can live a holy life. We preach that often. You read the rest of Paul's letters to the church, even the letter of Ephesians, and you will see the church doing horrible things. Stop sleeping with your stepmother. Horrible thing. Not pure. You know, stop sinning. Stop committing adultery, lust, drunkenness, pornography. All these things. Paul's constantly writing these letters, not to the people that don't believe, but to the church that believes. We see this picture of a broken, sinful church over and over again. A church that seeks to follow Jesus. They have that small, fledgling, and at times great desire. They fall on their face constantly. And yet Paul still calls them holy. To God's holy people in the church of Ephesus. To God's holy people at West Village. How can he do this? Simple answer. Because Jesus is the one that makes us holy. He's the one that if we are defined by him, sets us apart. His life purifies our life. His death pays for our sins. His holiness becomes our holiness through belief. Such good news. Makes my heart glad. I want to celebrate this over and over and over again. I never want to stop. Because there's no pressure to be perfect in Jesus' church. Fleshly man-driven churches? Sure, it creeps in. You've probably felt that pressure at West Village before. I apologize if I've done that to you. It's not our intent. Jesus is the standard, but he is the one that makes us perfect. And we we are made holy every moment of every day by our belief in Jesus. He is the one that's continually refining and redefining us. And this is why Paul has a second description of the church. He calls the church faithful. So what does this mean? How does our faith relate to our holiness? We'll give you, I'll give you a sneak peek of what's coming in a couple of weeks in Ephesians 1.13. Probably like three months out. It's only 13 verses away. But, um, <clears throat> it says in 1.13, And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Faithfulness is just belief in the gospel. You hear the good news that you were broken and sinner, that you had a great need, and Jesus filled that for you perfectly. You hear that need and be like, I agree. That is true. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. You say that, and he makes you holy. It's a great weight taken off our shoulders, right? This is all we really talk about around here because it's the only good news that we can offer. I can't give you a 10-point list that says you do these things and you'll get into heaven or you will have a good life. And if I do, you can throw stones at me. Full permission. 
It's not something we can offer you. It's something so many of us are seeking because we realize that there's needs in our life and we just want to put action to them, to fix ourselves. And the first step in Christianity is saying, I can't fix myself. I am needy and broken and I need something outside myself to save me. And that is Jesus. But my fear is that our hearts become numb to this good news. That as we hear it every Sunday, and as we put the word gospel in front of everything West Village does, that our hearts become numb. That we start looking for more interesting things to soothe our religious needs and to pique our curiosity, new theologies and deeper theologies, and arguing about small points of the Bible, instead of feasting again and again upon the beautiful truth of the gospel. So what do we do with this fear? What do I do with this fear? Uh, Where's it going to lead us? How do we become a people who never grow tired of hearing the good news of Jesus? How do we let the gospel define us going forward? Paul is shouting it with these last two verses. Let's read the last few. We'll do a brisket check. Okay, we're three degrees off, everybody. We're getting close. Um, let's read verse two. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sentence that we've read this morning of these three verses dealing with Paul, Paul's identity, and the church's identity are grounded in Jesus. You know, look, an apostle in Christ Jesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To become a people that never tires, never grows weary, that never comes numb to hearing the gospel, we need to be a people that are grounded and defined by Jesus. We need to create habits, deep, powerful habits that lead us to him often. <clears throat> and that's going to look slightly different for all of us. Uh, so I'll give an example in my life. Um, if you've been around me at all in the past month or so, you've probably heard we talk about this already, um, but I've been through the, going through this journey of emotional health, and it's this ministry called Tin Man Ministry, because I used to be a tin man, and I'm not going to be a tin man anymore. So I'll get a brief overview. Went to the Soma Retreat, which is our family of churches retreats. Everybody was talking about this tin man stuff. They didn't really teach on it, but the Spirit just laid this, or planted this seed in me, like, man, you got to pursue that. Um, you suck at emotions, and you're surrounded by a bunch of emotional people. you got to go figure that out. Uh, <clears throat> And so it wouldn't go away. I tried to ignore it a little bit, talked about it with some people. Eventually, I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I'll email this Tin Man stuff. And so I started this coaching journey with them uh, to figure out what does it mean to live a life of emotional fullness. And so the main drivers for me, um, yeah, like I said, lack of emotional awareness, wanted to care for my kids and my wife well. Uh, and I just thought that I was missing out on life. Like there was a, a richness to life that I was missing out on. Like, I, if you know me, calm, steady, stay the course, not a lot of highs, not a lot of lows. Uh, and that I thought was a good thing. But in reality, I've been realizing like, because I lack those highs and lows, like life lacks a little flavor. Like lacks a fullness. So how does this relate to the sermon beside me just kind of talking through my process here? Jesus has used it in deep ways to create honesty within myself, to say, yeah, I have neediness or loneliness or sadness or guilt or shame. 
Those things aren't necessarily bad, and they point me to him, and they point me to being open in community. He has used it um, to soften my heart over and over again. And this, I think, is where the power lies for me in this process. Like, if my heart is soft, it tills the soil for the gospel to bear fruit and to be planted. When I am full of pride and don't think I have any neediness or self-sufficiency, then I don't need the gospel and I can become numb to it. Like, yeah, I know that. Those are some good words that I will teach to people. But I don't need that for myself today. I got it all figured out. When I go through this process of actually like recognizing in my own life hurts and pains and loneliness and sadness and fear, I'm like, yeah, if those things are going to be healthily expressed. They're going to lead me to Jesus. He's going to comfort me in my hurt. He's going to be with me in my loneliness. He's going to be the one that helps in my fears. And so I think as we, we look at forming habits of being with Jesus, we need to take some of those learnings that I'm having. We need to take this humility and desire or recognition of neediness and embed that into our habits that lead us to Jesus. Because if we don't, we will become prideful and hard-hearted. So my question is, what habits do you have? in your life. They don't have to be the same as mine. I'll give you some examples here. Maybe it's just a regular time of Bible reading and prayer. That's like church 101 habit, right? You get taught that all the time. Go do that. It's good for you. Encouragement be ask, are you actually making space in that time to hear from the Lord and to be honest about yourself? Or maybe you are some of the faithful few who are part of a DNA group. These small groups of three or four men or women where you're looking at discovering one another and nurturing one another and acting on that DNA. You get to confess sin and hear this truth spoken over you. It's a really good habit. That act of confession and then the truth coming into speaking into it. It's really helpful. It's a really good habit to learn to be with Jesus. Or maybe the only habit you have or have been able to make space in your life for is coming to the gathering once a week. There's nothing wrong with that. This is a good space. Jesus richly speaks to me in this space all the time, and I miss it when I'm away. But my longing for you is that if that is the case, if you come on Sunday and your heart is just moved, and you're like, that was awesome, um, then then look for more. I grew up with Andrew, and I used to only come to a gathering every other week or like once a month. Like, oh, after one, I was like, hey, Andrew, oh, man, that was so good. I really enjoyed that. And he's like, well, why don't you come all the time then? It's like, oh, cutting deep, Andrew. Um, But there's truth to that, right? Like, oh, this was good. This was a habit that formed me and was rich. And I want to lean into it more and then seek it more in my life, being with Jesus. I also recognize that a question that I just asked, that question, what habits do you have, actually will form guilt in a lot of us. Like, I have none. I suck at this. I feel really bad right now, Matt. Thanks a lot. Don't hide from that feeling. Look at it. Look at your guilt. Be like, what is this trying to tell me? Trying to tell me that I made a mistake or messed up. And I need forgiveness. And that simple thing can lead you to Jesus. Like, man, you can run from your guilt, try to ignore it, justify it. Or I can be like, I'm broken. 
I'm inadequate. I need forgiveness. Jesus offers it. That right there is a habit that you should form. Because the good news is that even in our inaction and mistake, Jesus acts. He comes to Paul on the road. He speaks into our lives. He is the hero of the story, not us. Let's draw this to a close. Brisket's done. Boom. Um, perfect timing, brisket. As I said, and hopefully we'll never stop saying, it's all about Jesus. He is embedded in each of these verses for a reason. He calls, he saves, and he appoints Paul for the great works God had for him. He sets apart a people for himself. The church, us. He makes us holy as we remain faithful to him. He continues to offer his grace and peace to us today continues to define and redefine us. And he invites us to experience life with him every day in rich, meaningful ways, in the midst of the mundane of the laundry and the grocery shopping and the making food and the sitting in a cubicle. He is in that space with you, inviting you to something more, inviting you to glorify him in the midst of that. He desires this for our lives. And there's an opportunity now for us to say yes to desiring that above all else. This might be the first time you're saying yes to that. I encourage you. Think through what that means. Think through the cost. But don't be afraid because Jesus is a good God. He is an amazing king and will take care of you. This could be the thousandth time we are saying yes to this. Every Sunday you may be like, oh, I need that so bad. Yes, again. I'll pray the sinner's prayer every week if I have to. That's okay. Say yes again. It's okay to feel shame if this isn't your desire. It's okay to let shame bring you to a place of humility to show you your neediness for Jesus. Don't ignore it. Be like, oh man, I feel bad that I don't want that, man. The trap there is to go, ignore it, become shameless, and just not care anymore. The gift there is to move into this place of knowing yourself and knowing Jesus, to be attuned to what he has for you, to how he makes up for your inadequacies, and then bring that need to him in prayer. So if you have that desire to know Jesus better, or if you want that desire, then pray this prayer with me. Jesus, we are broken and we need you. We constantly go back to the old things that defined us. We need your help. We want you to be the first and foremost in our lives. We want to experience your grace and peace, so please send us your spirit to guide us and remind us of your gospel each and every day. Define our lives. If you agree with that, just say, say amen. Say it out loud, amen. That's what I want. Amen. Um, I don't have to do communion, so I'm going to hand over the band. Come on up, band. Um, <clears throat> we're going to sing. We're going to declare these desires out loud uh, through song and worship. Adam's going to lead us through communion in a bit. We'll take that in a physical form. So let's do that. Let's do that well as a changed people this morning.